Hello, everybody. It's Rob here from Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, reminding you that if you like our show and think we deserve some financial support for what we do, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod to become a member. And if you don't want to, well, not a problem. Just ignore that strange feeling you have, that tingling on the back of your neck, that sinking feeling that someone is right behind you, watching, always watching. Anyway, hold fast and enjoy the show. You smell different when you sleep. So, guys, I have a question. Okay. If, if you were a giant, what would your distinguishing feature be? Besides height. Jolly and or green. Mm, noted. Ginormous phallus. Nice. Good pick. Going into the fan fiction side of things. Good pick. Oh, yeah. I see you took the, the commercial aspect of things. Well, no, I mean, I, I, I go into adult entertainment. Mm. Now, Kyle, do you want, like, is this, uh, like, giant for a giant? Because I feel like if you're going to be a giant, it's already going to scale up. No, well, it's that's that's a fair point. At what point does it become inconvenient? You're not locked into an answer here. I'm going to stick mm. with Jolly and Green because there's money in it. Jolly and or Green. You may have to pick one to avoid and copyright infringement. I'm not getting sued. Mm-hmm. No, I'm sticking with it. Big for a giant. Big for a I giant. Because then I could just go into giant adult movies. I, adult movies for other giants. I have follow-up questions, but I'm not going to like the answer to any of them. So I'm going to give we'll, you my we'll answer ask these, here. We'll ask these off air. I'm going to. I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to go with the an, an extension of uh, the 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 giants from Gargantua and Pantagruel by Rabelais. Um, we, we've told this story. I think we told this story in the Hellfire Club series where Gargantua about. I was going that, to make a joke, but we already made a Pantagruel joke. Yeah, but it was a. It was a. You know, he found out that a a goose was the best animal to wipe your ass with. I think I'm just going to be that giant that runs around testing different animals to clean off my muffler. (laughs) It might be goose. Could be. Could be a goose. It could be goose. We don't know. But the scientific method demands rigorous, repetitive testing to avoid anomalous findings. You know, you cannot build a properly constructed scientific theory... On one result, on one testing result, you ha- you have to confirm it. So, yeah, that's the uh, that's the angle I'm going to take. It was a fairly abstract Spider-Man villain. I don't remember who he was, but he was turning everybody into dinosaurs. Huh. And this reminds me of like you are using the scientific method to, to wipe your ass. And and Peter Parker, actually, I believe, I'm nothing if not thorough, Chris. I believe it was I believe it was Spider-Man at the time, but he had been an associate of, of young Peter Parker. And had discovered who he was. He was like, Doctor, you're brilliant. You could cure cancer. He goes, but I don't want to. I want to make people into dinosaurs. <laughs> and I get that. <laughs> that's that's just where you're coming from. Yeah. You're just going to be wiping your ass with critters. Well, it's kind of nice because you guys could just get to sit there and spend a lot of time sitting on the toilet. Or as you call it in this, uh, if I'm taking this angle, as you call it, developing my hypothesis. Perfect. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And... Uh, Speaking of perfect, you are listening to The Perfect Podcast. Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm Rob North, your host. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am Kyle Graper. And today we are discussing somebody who delved into the field of giants. More into the, I would call it the arts and crafts field. 
It was both. Mm-hmm. It kind of included a little bit of everything that we just said. Yeah. It's like yeah, it, you yeah. have you have the commercial side, mm-hmm. you have the scientific aspect, and then you have a phallus. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Yeah. And it's all these things are mixed into the story of the Cardiff Giant, which is what we're discussing today. Now, we've traveled into huckster territory before, in somewhat spectacular fashion with our series on Gregor McGregor, the man who invented a country and got people to invest the equivalent of billions of dollars in its development. That guy was way meaner than who we're going to talk about today, though. Yeah. However, the story of the Cardiff Giant, while still very much in the realm of flim-flam and hoaxing, is an altogether different story, and it's a uniquely American story. Because without the religiosity and gullibility of your average American at the time, this story never would have happened. As has been said before about so many things, this is the sort of thing that can only happen in America. And what makes the story of the Cardiff Giants so entertaining is that, unlike most tales of American hucksterism, which are generally driven by greed or a desire for fame, this story was driven by nothing more than plain old spite. That's right, one of the weirdest hoaxes in American history was simply intended to be nothing more than a giant fuck you. So, we are going to examine some of the history of giant lore in America and just why the country was so primed for this hoax, how it bred a long series of copycats, and just where the giant finds itself today. So sit back and enjoy the tale of a pissed-off curmudgeon with money to burn, a ten-foot stone man, and a big old stone man's big old stone dick. And that's not gratuitous <laughs> when we talk about it, because the dick has a role to play. Correct. So before we get into the story, of course, we want to give honor to our sources. Uh, primary amongst which are A Colossal Hoax, The Giant from Cardiff That Fooled America by Scott Tribble. We also have American Goliath by Harvey Meyer. And we have selections from Fakers, Forgers, and Phonies by the fantastically named Magnus Magnuson. So gentlemen, any points of order before we proceed with the tale of hoaxing, hucksterism, phonies, frauds? I'm just glad we finally found a huckster that's kind of hilarious and yes. not just, like, really horrible. Yeah, I mean, no one real like, he doesn't completely fuck anyone over. No. Not really. Like, nobody's life got significantly worse because of this dude, which is kind of Except refreshing. maybe his, I Mo- guess. Most of the people... Of? He, most of Only the, because oh, he, missed, yeah. he missed out on, on a couple opportunities. Most of the people he fucked over, he fucked out of 50 cents. Yeah, yeah, which, yeah. Right, and even with inflation, it's like five bucks, maybe it went, 10. It went, went further than it does today, but it, right. it's still... You know, it's still not, uh, you know, it's not loading them onto a ship and dropping them off on the coast of Honduras in the jungle to just waste away. Here's your furniture. Bye. (laughs) By the way, I lied. So, for the people of the United States in the years immediately following the Civil War, the belief in giants was really nothing new. It wasn't really new for anybody anywhere, as giants are a common trope in just about every type of folklore and mythos out there, from the Jotun of the Norse stories, to the Formorians of Irish myth, to the Titans of ancient Greek lore. Late medieval French folklore told of a ten-foot warrior giant named Margu, who supposedly came from the land of the Turks and was feared by all on the battlefield, but met his end when he saw a monkey trying to put on a pair of boots and laughed so hard and so long that his belly burst. It's a good death. I'd be happy to go that way. That's how my grandfather went, man. He was a hero. (laughs) Now, all of these stories of giants certainly crossed the seas, along with the immigrant populations that arrived in America in years previous. Late medieval... Excuse me. uh, uh, Now, stories of giants were also common among those people already here. Like the Gao, a giant that controlled the winds in Huron, Seneca, and Haudenosaunee lore. We have the Siteka, a giant and patron spirit of the Paiutes of Utah, Nevada. 
We also have the Sulkalu, a giant often invoked in the hunting rites and rituals of the Cherokee nations. The Alaskan Inupiat people tell stories of a horrific female giant that steals children to eat named Ketentuyu, who has a massive hideous head, pendulous breasts that swing to her waist, and a vulva that stretches down so far from her pelvis that it nearly drags on the ground. It's a big Rodney Dangerfield-esque kind of scenario <laughs> kind we've of got is. going here. Like, oh, take my wife. Chase, chase, chase. Thump, ow, tree stump. Ow, ow. <laughs> now, stories of folkloric giants even emerge from the oral traditions of American settlers and immigrants after their arrival. Like the famed lumberjack Paul Bunyan, the 30-foot sea captain Alfred Bulltop Stormalong, and the huge Swedish farmer and cloudburster Feebold Feebolson in Nebraska. Now, these folkloric stories were everywhere and still are, from Rebelais Gargantua to the tales of Jack and the Beanstalk. But it wasn't just temporal folklore that contained tales of giant men walking the earth. The Christian Bible is filled with mentions of giants, from the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6, to the mighty Og, king of Bashan in Deuteronomy chapter 3, the giants mentioned by Moses' spies that populated Canaan in Numbers chapter 13, and of course the feared Goliath, giant champion of the Philistines and enemy of David in 2 Samuel. And we're in a time and place in our story where a cleaving to the words of the Bible by most of the population would have been at quite a high ebb. Now this was a very evangelical society at this time. And what I mean by this is that the form that Christianity was taking in America, and especially in the central part of New York where our story is centered, was embroiled in the sort of Christian faith that differed significantly from what had come before, and was generally more in line with the four-square Pentecostal services, tent revivals, and snake handling that we see and laugh at today. Now, American Christianity at this time was heavily Protestant, and although many Catholics, most of them Irish, along with a smattering of Germans and other folks, were making their way to America over the previous decades, they tended to cluster in large population centers in the coasts, or take their chances making their way westward. Plus, Christianity had gravitated away somewhat from the sober, reserved, mostly deist form that it had taken earlier in the nation's history, and it had been injected with a lot more of the fire and brimstone, Bible-thumping, old-time religion style of worship, as well as a rejection of a lot of the more established religious sects. People were leaving groups like the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, and the Presbyterians, and shifting over to newer congregations, and this led to the emergence of some pretty interesting new groups. Of course, many people out there have heard the tale of the Millerites and the Great Disappointment, one of the first major occurrences of a charismatic preacher promising the end of all things to his flock, who then sell off all their worldly possessions to get ready for the tribulation, only to have nothing happen and the goalposts start moving. Yeah, but the storm, man, the storm. Two weeks, <laughs> two weeks, we're going to know. This is going to be another one of those nothing new under the sun episodes, isn't it? <laughs> no, yeah. Yep. You also have the Shakers, known for their ecstatic dancing and celebrating and celebrating during services. We have the Seventh-day Adventists who come about during this time. You have the Oneida Society, who practiced utopian communalist living and engaged in group marriage, where sexual mm. coupling was decided by committee. <laughs> and Amazing. we've all been in relationships like that. Just argued Amazing. by like an old Southern lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> Just an now, now, goodly, good people. <laughs> And I would like to point out, Your Honor, that this horny young gentleman has been denied for far too long. Thank you, Mr. Fitch. So, and then there's also stories like that of a church that was built around a preacher who alternated effusive praise to God with long series of horse noises. There was also a church led by a female preacher who claimed to receive the word of God through a talking cat, and of a treasure hunter slash con man 
who decided to write his own book based upon his communications with an angel named Moroni. Well, good, good. That one definitely burnt out. Yeah. Who let, Nobody's going to believe that. Yeah. And and Moroni left the next chapter of Christianity to him on golden plates. A fella named Joseph Smith. I don't think anyone's ever heard of him. Yeah. yeah. Now, similarly, all the major existing Protestant churches, in order to keep up with these new charismatic movements, all bumped up the preachiness and end times talk and walked away from the idea of their faith as a matter of intellectual and academic exercise, as well as communion with the Almighty. American churches moved from being the sort of institutions that prided themselves on having an awful lot of leaders with the title The Reverend Doctor, and by 1850, for example, the American Baptist Publication Society was using as an advertising strategy the claim that in the entire country, of their over 4,000 preachers, only three of them had a college degree. They were bragging about this. So this movement became known collectively as the Second Great Awakening. There would be two more, the third of which gave us groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Christian Scientists, and the fourth kind of kicked into gear in the 60s and 70s and set the table for megachurches, Daystar, the Moonies, all of that shit show. With the Second Great Awakening would come a rather anti-intellectual streak in America, as so often happens, and much of the worship that happened in these, within this new paradigm centered around miracles, faith healing, and general wild and outlandish stories, which culturally primed the American public at large to believe stories and exhibitions that look more like the front page of the weekly world news than anything else. I mean, it's not an accident that P.T. Barnum and his sideshows became popular in this same period. Oh, no, not at all. Now, we're also in the years immediately following the Civil War, which means that the American people are clinging to their religion now more than ever. The political leadership on both sides of the war painted the struggle in very religious terms, and soldiers and civilians on both sides were fed what I would call the victory gospel, the idea that the war was a holy struggle and God's favor would be shown in those who found victory. And the Civil War was a, I mean, it's a hugely traumatic event. People are losing their family members, their livelihoods are being destroyed, and people are thinking that the American experiment's at an end. So they're going to seek surety and comfort anywhere they can, which I don't really blame them for. Mm. And their religion is one of the places they're going to look to to cope with what has just been happening and everything that's been lost. Now, in fairness, Second Great Awakening, and actually the Second Great Awakening in New York, was also what gave us the religious thinking that would become one of the pillars of the abolitionist movement. And we wouldn't have stories like today's without it. So, you know, there's a silver lining to every cloud. <clears throat> and we can't overlook the place where this story happens. During the Second Great Awakening, the great cultural changes weren't taking place in the major population centers on the coasts or out on the bleeding edge of the frontier. Places like the areas around Rochester and Syracuse, New York, or Ohio's Western Reserve, long settled and pretty well developed, but not necessarily teeming with people, were the centerpiece for this revolution in American religion. All of those religious groups I mentioned earlier, the Millerites, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Latter-day Saints, all of them sprung out of the area around the western two-thirds of New York State. So many new and out there religious sects flared up and flamed out or caught and spread in such a short time that the area became known as the Burned Over District. I don't think it's an accident that our story happens here. Now, in addition to America's religious foibles making them ready for the Cardiff Giant, there's another cultural aspect that sets the table. And that's something that I would term alternative archaeology and anthropology. At the root of this is a trope that still exists today. The idea that when you look at the monumental architecture of the past made with ancient technology, you stop and you think, the people of thousands of years ago couldn't possibly have done that without help. I mean, this manifests today as ancient aliens, mostly. Mm -hmm. But for a long time, people were looking at the Great Pyramid of Giza, Stonehenge, the Cahokia Mounds, and all of the other 
mounds, tombs, standing stones, monuments, and not just thinking it could have been giants who helped build that, but it must have been giants that helped build that. Now remember, thousands of years have passed, but it's still the same people with the same brains that we have. Well, it's all, and I mean, to be frank, that theory is also super racist. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. And yeah, just because they don't have metal or combustion engines or computers doesn't mean they can't master the technology available to them and create great works. It's also amazing what people can do when they don't have distractions. Mm -hmm. Like, I waste time on my phone, computer, and television. They didn't have any of that, nor books or particularly many hobbies. You live right across from an active building site. Why aren't you constructing a pyramid there? Oh, man, I should build a pyramid. Beta male. Could you imagine how pissed off they would be if they showed up to this site and there was just a fucking pyramid? <laughs> yeah, that's because that's the thing. We know who owns the site. We're not going to say who owns the site on the podcast, but like... I'll say I'd get a hockey stick through the front window of the house. <laughs> <laughs> imagine just one day, just you dragging a big stone block with a rope. <laughs> just going nowhere, just slipping and sliding in the Or dirt. like just aliens, f- aliens would be building it because as we know... Only white people can build hard things. Mm. Well, I mean, the way it would go is... At least according to the yeah. History Channel after midnight. Actually, no, you'd be fine. You'd be able to build it. Because um, I love you, buddy, but you're you're Caucasian as fuck. I mean, we all are, but... Yeah, yeah. Realistically, the cats would just, like, sit on a chariot with me as I You already stones. worship the cats. Yeah. This is uh, this is all working oh, out. man. This, this has really been preordained. It's fantastic. We shit in a box. The human cleans it up. So, yeah. So, basically... What are you, Tony Dungy? Like, yeah. (laughs) That's a a timely joke. That's rough. He's already been canceled. Yeah. So, yeah. So, stop listening to people like Graham Hancock who just sound smart when they're saying something completely fucking stupid. Now, and of course, a uh, a lot of this is in the Americas. And so, this especially plays into two major tropes that have never fully gone away. One, the idea that America is so vast and unexplored that if there is going to be some mysterious unknown race out there, it's going to be out in the wilderness of the Americas. And two, the rampant racism displayed against the indigenous nations, which painted the original Americans as primitive to the point of being childlike, which in the eyes in the eyes of white settlers, clearly unable to construct these scads of burial mounds, earthworks, and standing stones, so they must have had help. I mean, shit, Joseph, Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon postulates that much of this architecture points to the idea that the Native Americans really were one of the white, according to Smith, by the way, lost tribes of Israel, the, mm-hmm. the Nephites and the Lamanites. I mean, famed Massachusetts Puritan Cotton Mather believed that Macedon fossils found outside Albany in 1705 couldn't be anything but the bones of giants who had perished in Noah's flood, stating, quote, The giants that once grown under the waters are now under the earth, and their dead bodies are lively proofs of the mosaic history. Now, some American historians at the time began to postulate that maybe there was a group of Europeans that made it all the way here before Columbus and Jamestown, and made all these mounds and earthworks for the locals, using their white people expertise. <laughs> Pretty wild to think that Columbus would have shown up to a country that already had people in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, first of all, let's get that, let's get something straight here. How else would he discover these things? Well, and he was, he was genuine, he was... <laughs> You know, he's not going to build anything without taking his vig. As we've covered this. <laughs> Fuck it, Jay. Might as well be Swiss. Yeah. <laughs> now, some who thought a I'm little... I'm Southern Italian, yeah. okay? We don't like him. <laughs> he was really rich. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Milan? You mean France? Right. <laughs> now, some who thought a little higher of the native nations postulated that they may very well have traveled to Africa 
and brought back enslaved Africans to use as a workforce to build all of these things. Which is very helpful for the argument of, well, the natives were doing it first, so it's totally cool that we're doing it too. And of course, there was a group who thought that the people who helped the original Americans do all this building were from the lost continent of Atlantis. But for the rest... This wasn't during like the big Atlantis period, though. Because there was there was a section in time where like everything in popular culture was just Atlantis. The Atlantis you explain thing, anything? Atlantis. The Atlantis thing has kind of come in mm-hmm. like almost like a sine wave. It's yeah. it's sort of in parallel to American religiosity. Because Atlantis theory was really, really big after the tail end of the Enlightenment. Because the Enlightenment was all about the writings of, of, of Plato mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. stuff like that. A lot of people are becoming educated in the classics, and so they're starting to become familiar with the story of Atlantis and thus the hoi polloi start catching on to that and then they start believing stuff like this and it happens it kind of happens again in like the a the late the late 1800s with the emergence of kind of modern esotericism yeah see we're just a little shy of this because it was big Atlantis was yeah big so we're 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 kind of at a period in between the two we're kind of at a low point in the sine wave there but it's still around Mm-hmm. I mean, you still have people in the 1860s and 1870s writing that it was clearly the Atlanteans or people from, oh, what was the other lost continent? Lemuria, that are showing up and oh, helping yep. the natives do it. So, yeah. But for the for the rest, the people who didn't believe any of these theories, it wasn't that hard to make the leap to a race of giants dragging stones and moving earth. Here's a quote. But still there is more. It calls up the indefinite past. When Columbus first sought this continent, when Christ suffered on the cross, when Moses led Israel through the Red Sea, nay, even when Adam first came to the hand of his maker, then as now Niagara was roaring here. The eyes of that species of extinct giants whose bones fill the mounds of America have gazed on Niagara as do ours now. Contemporary with the whole race of men and older than the first man, Niagara is strong and fresh today as 10,000 years ago. The mammoth and mastodon, now so long dead that fragments of their monstrous bones alone testify that they have ever lived, have gazed on Niagara. In that long, long time, never still for a single moment. Never dried, never froze, never slept, never rested. The person who is referencing giants in this speech about Niagara Falls? Abraham Lincoln. Hmm. Giving a speech at a Whig Party conference at Niagara Falls in 1848. Hmm. Yep. Now, there have been stories outside of what I would term the realm of folklore of the remains of giant people being unearthed as far back as there have been credible written records. The the manuscripts of medieval monks talk about finding skeletons in their church crypts or graveyards that are 8, 10, sometimes even 12 or more feet in height. The early European explorers of the Americas wrote frequently about finding groups of extraordinarily tall people on the shores of the New World. From Spanish conquistadors on the Gulf Coast of Texas to French fur trappers in the shores of Hudson Bay, there are recollections of witnessing or meeting indigenous peoples who were seven or eight feet in height, perhaps even taller. The logs of Ferdinand Magellan's circumnavigation in 1520 talk of witnessing a naked giant dancing and singing on a hillside from shore, stating that he was twice the height of even the tallest among the expedition's sailors. It also records that two of these giants, half again as tall as anyone else on board, were captured and taken aboard to return to Europe but died and were conveniently buried at sea. And there is a root of truth to these stories. Based upon recovered human remains from both sides of the Atlantic at the time, the average conquistador, raised on a European peasant's diet, was five foot four, 
whereas the much healthier and active indigenous people of the Americas were on average five to six inches taller. So it's one of those situations where you have a root of truth that then mm -hmm. I think tends to get exaggerated. Now the supposed age of reason didn't stop the stories either. Rich antiquarians joined in the mix, speeding, speaking of graves dug up that contained the bones of shockingly tall individuals, and diaries and reports to news journals have eight foot and taller skeletons unearthed with surprising regularity. Of course, in most of these cases, there is no actual displayed bones to, for proof, or they were proven to be the bones of horses, cows, and oxen. Other stories persist of giant bones being uncovered that were stony and much harder than regular bone, and of full bodies of giant men found preserved in the ground, even as the 19th century came about. Now, of course, we do have to accept that there is probably some physiological truth behind certain finds. Gigantism and Marfan syndrome are a thing, and people affected by these conditions can regularly grow well past eight feet tall. Mm -hmm. You have the tallest recorded man in history, Robert Wadlow of Alton, Illinois. He was eight foot eleven. He was four foot eleven at the age of three. Damn. Although sadly, he only lived to the age of twenty-two. Many more people are recorded as being taller than eight feet. Sultan Kosen of Turkey is the tallest known living man. He's eight foot five and a half. You have a guy named Morteza Merjad, an Iranian Paralympic volleyball player. He's eight foot one. Yao Defen, the world's tallest known woman, is seven foot nine. I mean, I mean, shit. We watched Manu Bol and George Mirazan play in the NBA. They're both what seven foot seven, seven foot six. I think Taco might be taller than either of them. Yeah, it's not uncommon for people to grow beyond seven feet tall. And while archaeological finds of human remains of this height are pretty rare, they aren't unheard of, and some of the remains that do survive that were written about by antiquarians before the advent of modern archaeology have been exampled, or have been examined, excuse me, and a few of them are people with gigantism or Marfan syndrome. And some of these remains go back to the Bronze Age, the even the Neolithic period. Many other sets of quote-unquote human remains have been analyzed with modern techniques and have been found to be otherwise. But this doesn't quite explain the whole petrified or stone part of this story. Maybe the root lies with some of the indigenous giant folklore <clears throat> in the Americas, because there's a really interesting through line to a lot of these stories, like those of the Shawnee, the Miwok, and a bunch of other nations, that these giants have either stone skin or skin that's been hardened by rolling in sand and gravel and are thus proof against arrows. <laughs> Maybe settlers are hearing these tales and something sticks. Maybe there's just some kind of Jungian cultural memory at work here, I'm not sure. And people are hearing about people turning to stone in folklore as well. I mean, even today, we've all at least, we're all at least passingly familiar with the idea of Medusa. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Tolkien didn't invent the idea of trolls turning to stone by the coming of dawn. He only borrowed it. Plus, leading up to our, the events of our story in the late 1850s, there's a series of stories that pop up in newspapers of the time. The closer you were to fr the frontier, I think the more likely you were to hear it. The men kept getting petrified after drinking water contained within geodes for some reason. Hmm. And, uh, uh, There's a reason why that story was circulated, though. Yeah? It was Hall. Hall was the one that circulated that story. <laughs> oh, God, you're right. Because <laughs> that started popping up in the late 1850s. Was yeah. he already on that? It was so, yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, Hall did. He, uh, yeah. he wrote into a newspaper. I don't remember what it was, but it was in uh, 1958 was the first one. Uh, Alta, California, according to my notes. That's fantastic. But yeah, it was a. It was so I was going to say, I took one college level geology class and we didn't cover that. I don't think. I, it's I was probably say, I because your professor drank some geode water and just became, just became petrified. <laughs> but then you all got an A in accordance with. Uh, <laughs> college urban. I mean, I lived yeah, alone was, at that um, point, so. It was, it was a fake letter from a prospector, but yeah, he wrote that it, it petrified you. <laughs> so this. 
My man was playing the long con on this. I don't know why I hear that letter in the same tone as you get on the announcement on Big Thunder Mountain. <laughs> Somewhere there's some poor guy. This here's a- the wildest ride in the wilderness. Somewhere there's some poor guy with erectile dysfunction just chugging rock water. <laughs> yeah. You have to rub it on, on your shoulders. Mm. <laughs> no, there's... It's not the part I would think you'd have to rub it on. It's a testosterone joke. Mm. Yeah. Now well, whenever, some... you, whenever you have a headache, you just like like put a tie on your head? Of course not, Rob. Don't be ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I've been doing it wrong when I have diarrhea. Now, there's some... <laughs> Now, there's some truth to the story of stone-like bones or remains that have been petrified and hardened. Now, there are some situations where human remains are buried in soils rich in calcium carbonate and other chemical compounds that can bond with bone and give it a hardened, rough, stony texture, even if the remains aren't that ancient. And, of course, the knowledge of fossilization is only a couple hundred years old. Mm -hmm. So it's entirely possible that people were finding the fossilized remains of who knows what and just making the leap to... Fuck. Well, and a lot of the regions... Giants, were, yeah, man. A lot of the regions we're going to talk about today were yeah. particularly fossil-rich. Mm-hmm. And, and while we haven't really found a lot of petrified remains of soft tissue, it can occasionally happen in the mm-hmm. right conditions. But human remains have it a lot harder, and I don't think of any... I can't think of any examples where this has happened. However, I think what could also be contributing to this is the discovery over the last couple centuries of things like bod bodies and mummies. Mm-hmm. You know, in frozen a, bodies or... Yeah, in a lot of these cases, the soft tissue survives. in the 90s, whenever Dr. Hammond found the the mosquito in amber. Oh, yes. Chris, I have bad news. That wasn't a documentary. What about the second one? I stand corrected. (laughs) (laughs) Can we get Goldblum on the phone? Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so, yeah, the soft tissue survives, but it becomes very stiff and hardened like old leather, and I can't think... And while I can't think of any finds like this that haven't been of, like, normal proportion... It's easy to see how these stories can travel and morph, and the next thing you know, tales of petrified men are alive and well within the less informed sections of the population. Well, and other matter can be... Carbon materials can be petrified. Mm-hmm. Like, we know that for sure. Like, petrified wood and other plant matter. Yeah. So it's not a huge jump to, to take that over to flesh. But yeah, so all of these factors, I think, all play into a very, very target-rich environment for a good old-fashioned hoax. And with everybody nice and ready, it wasn't a surprise when the furore rose when on October 16th, 1869, a shocking discovery was made on the farm of William C. Stubb Newell in the small hamlet of Cardiff, New York, a few miles south of Syracuse. Now, Stubb had hired a pair of workmen to dig a well on his property, and three feet down, the two laborers discovered something remarkable. A massive, stony foot. One of them exclaimed, quote, I declare some old Indian has been buried here. Continuing to uncover what they'd found, they were shocked to uncover a massive humanoid form of a petrified naked man, 10 feet, four and a half inches in height, buried in the earth. Word spread quickly and the people of Cardiff, there weren't that many to be honest, all rushed down to Stubbs Farm to see what was going on. They were the ones who got to see the unearthed giant for free. By the next day, Stubb Newell had erected a tent over the giant, still in situ in the ground, and was charging people 25 cents to see the remarkable find. So many people showed up in the first two days as word got up to Syracuse and the surrounding towns that he raised the price to 50 cents a person after three days. But that didn't stop anybody, and in the first week, more than 30,000 people came through to see what was already being called the Cardiff Giant, and newspapers throughout New York were reporting on the giant petrified man found in the earth. There wasn't a spare wagon or cart for miles. The few businesses in Cardiff sold out of goods and supplies and did more business in a week than they'd done in years. And people were struggling to find lodging after their journey to come see the phenomenon. 
People were flocking from as far as Pittsburgh and Cleveland to see the massive man. It was a sensation. People began to ask many questions. How had this giant died? Where was he from? How had such a massive find been concealed for so long? And was this finally proof that some ancient antediluvian race of giant men had actually populated the Americas? Many questions about the giant's provenance had to be answered. And we'll answer some of those questions after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, This drink's on me. Welcome back. So where had this 10-foot stony colossus in the ground in central New York come from? The book of Genesis. Genesis 6-4. I was going to say, for starters, it wasn't New York. (laughs) The story begins with a middle-aged Syracuse tobacconist named George Hall. Now, Hall came from a fairly well-to-do family and owned a thriving local business and was something of a local establishment, one of those people that everyone around the city knew. He had a reputation for being generous, but also being a little bit crotchety and stubborn. Definitely something of a local character and a real pain in the ass if you got on his bad side. And someone had gotten on George Hall's bad side. While visiting his brother in Ames, Iowa in November of 1867, Hall had gotten dragged to a Methodist tent revival and, after, and afterwards had gotten into an argument with the preacher, one Reverend Turk. <laughs> See, <laughs> I have visuals of this and it's so funny. <laughs> See, George Hall was an avowed atheist and, an, and at a time and place when most people were anything but. And he was very, how do I put this, Dawkins-like in his approach to his atheism. Yeah, that's wasn't making a, many friends. Yeah, Maybe more Hitchens-like. Because Hitchens, like, Dawkins was like... Dawkins kind of doesn't have a sense of humor. I think George Hall has a sense of humor, yeah, too. You so might I'm going right. to go Christopher Hitchens on mm. this one. Because, like, he seems like he would be more, like, aggressive yeah. about it. Especially if he just spent, like, four or five hours... How thirsty is this dog? <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it it would have been... I mean, tent revivals weren't short. No. It, like, no they were Methodist, hours Methodist hours still now, it, Yeah, I was going to say, like... Methodist church is not like it's not yeah. an hour. You, you know, already have a foul-tempered atheist, and he's just sitting there stewing for hours that hot. he got dragged to this. this you're, you're pissed about wasting his afternoon. Tank. You have to wear a suit. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah, so George George Hall was one of those kind of preachy fundamentalist atheists that gives the rest of us non-believers kind of a bad name. Like, I mean, look, I, I, I think you should be allowed to worship as you see fit. But also, if your worshiping turns you into a dick, mm-hmm. I should be allowed to bully you like we're on the schoolyard. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if you want to talk about how gays should be put to death from the pulpit, hope you're ready for an atomic wedgie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so. The swirly to end all swirlies. Yeah. Throw, throw them in the toilet, hook them up to a car battery. Electric <laughs> oh, swirly. No. <laughs> that, that, is, that is a Christopher Titus joke. I can't take I, I can't it. It is a uh, Titus joke. Yeah. So Titus gets a lot of mileage on this podcast. Yeah. I wonder if he listens. I'll send him some episodes. So I don't think he's doing much these days. <laughs> right? No, he is. is he's he? tor- yeah, he's touring. He's, he's got touring. his podcast. He's mm-hmm. yeah. So 
He was, they actually made new episodes of Titanic. We're getting bogged down here. Did they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll send you a link. So, yeah. George Hall was a devout defender of the newly published theories of Charles Darwin, which is fine. But he did often go out of his way to pick fights with anyone who disputed the theories of evolution and natural selection. Now, Hall was also a botanist as one of his main hobbies and considered himself something of an amateur naturalist, which... Oh, he's a, so he's a plant guy. Yeah. He ma- well, uh, ma- uh, this all makes sense. He, he, he works in tobacco. It kind of makes sense. Oh, right. yeah. That's yeah. valid. But this led to him having a conniption and picking an argument with Reverend Turk after the revival because Reverend Turk had centered his sermon around the passage in Genesis 6, verse 4, that talks about how a race of giants roamed the earth before the great flood of Noah. Should I, should I read the passage? It's short. Quote. Yeah. Wait, the, short, the passage about giants is short? Ironically. Ironically. Yeah. Quote. There were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men. Came in. Hmm. And they bare. How else do you book. think you're it's getting a, more? thirsty book. And they bore children to them. The same became mighty men. Of which, of which were of old, men of renown. Anyway, that's yeah, that's that's yeah, so Genesis it's not like, six four. You're not like a a, a titan of industry yeah. or a, a giant in your field. You're just a real giant and just mm-hmm. noteworthy. Yeah, but so Hull and Reverend Turk spent over half an hour bickering back and forth. But because Hull was unsurprisingly outnumbered at the Methodist tent revival by people who <laughs> supported the preacher's point of view, he was shouted down and he left in a huff. Now, for the rest of his time with his brother, Hull kept stewing about his disagreement with the Reverend. He couldn't let it go. He tried, but it just stuck in his craw. It's like when you have that fight and you think of the perfect comeback like three days later. Except he just doesn't stop thinking about it. Yeah, just muttering about it. Just rolling cigars, talking about this tent man. Yeah. So he decided that not only was he going to do something to prove just how gullible the preacher's flock was, he was going to do it on a massive scale and publicly humiliate all those who believed in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Now, still unable to let the argument go, Hull decided that he was going to spend an inordinate amount of time and money on a little art project to this very end. Hull wanted the discovery to be made in his local area because he knew that if he used local crafts, local craftsmen and labor, then either someone would let the word out or catch them in the act and the secret would be disseminated before the thing was even in the ground and he'd never get the chance to have his intellectual revenge. So, in January of 1868, Hall traveled all the way back to Iowa, which took two and a half days by train, and at his own expense, hired a team from a quarry in Fort Dodge to carve out an 11 by 5 foot block of gypsum weighing five tons for the purpose claiming that the block was going to be for a statue of Abraham Lincoln for a monument in New York State. I mean, you need 11 feet for that hat. Mm-hmm. Tall man. Hat. Tall guy. Big Tall hat. Tall guy, yeah. A lot Big of hat. A lot of guy. A lot of hat. Now, he knew that he'd need a stone from somewhere else that didn't match the Onondaga limestone bedrock common to the area around Cardiff, which would make people more likely to believe in its divine provenance. Hall then had the block of gypsum shipped by train to Chicago, where he hired a German stone cutter named Edvard Burghardt and paid him extra to swear him to secrecy. Borghardt and two assistant sculptors who were in on it, also Germans named Henry Sala and Friedrich Mormann, spent the next half a year carving the massive figure, <laughs> making it lifelike, as lifelike as they were able, and basing the face on a sketch Borghardt did of George Hall's own likeness, all the way down to the hair and Hall's impressive beard. However, I, would, I would do the exact same fucking thing, though. Yeah. Like, if I'm spending this kind of money... It's going to look like. I mean, I don't think we were accusing George Hall of being free of ego. 
<laughs> so, however, Hall consulted a geologist and determined that hair couldn't be petrified. So he wrote Borghardt and his team and had them remove the hair and the beard. So for the audience, this thing looks like one of the engineers from Prometheus. Oh my god. Except... <laughs> with a giant dick. <laughs> I mean, we'll get to the finished article here in a second. Okay, but we'll, we'll get to the dick. Jump in the gun. Yeah. But during this... He's just so excited about it. <laughs> during this whole process, Borghardt and his team worked entirely behind closed doors, and no one but them saw the carved figure. They even hung up quilts to deaden the noise of the carving and, and chiseling so as to not attract unnecessary curious onlookers. After the carving was complete, the fine detail work began, which included Borghardt slipping steel knitting needles through a specially produced wooden paddle to add delicate holes to the surface to resemble pores in the skin. Not only is everybody doing this, they are giddily doing this. Yes, yeah, they're loving it. It's six months for two sculptors. <laughs> I can't imagine just the cost. Or, yeah, the yeah thing, it's Borghardt and two assistants. So, he wiped the surface repeatedly with a sponge soaked in sand and water to give it a slightly rougher and more aged appearance, and covered the surface first in several layers of dark staining to make the fairly light-colored gypsum more look more aged, before rubbing the statue in sulfuric acid to further deepen the color and increase the appearance of aging and wear. In late November of 1868, a year after the argument between Hall and the Revival Preacher, the finished article, weighing in at 2,990 pounds was packed into a big crate, shipped by train all the way to Syracuse, and taken in secrecy by night to the farm of Stubb Newell, who was absolutely in on the hoax, as he was also an atheist and George Hall's cousin. In all, Hall had spent $2,800 on the quarrying, carving, shipping, and burial of the giant, worth over $250,000 at modern purchasing power. Just the piece of stone was about 50 grand. Yeah. <laughs> this was but this was only the first part of the process because he waited almost a year before having Stubb get the crew together to quote dig the well so that the grass could regrow over the spot and the heavy block of gypsum could settle into the ground and not be given away by being surrounded with loose earth. He may have been petty but he was patient. That's very true, yeah. Well, yeah, he's He's playing the long game. Probably still stewing the whole fucking... Actually, no. I think he got in a much better mood once he got started on it. Just like, you know, fucking or like stick Once it to he this guy. finally saw it. Yeah. Like saw the thing itself. <laughs> and, yeah. I, actually, yeah. Now's the time to talk about it. The finished article of this thing. Yeah. 10 feet... Almost 10 foot 5 in height. Look up an original picture of the Cardiff Giant. Because the thing is in it, it's in kind of a weird twisted pose. And everybody talks about how realistic it looks. Man, I don't see it. But it's fairly realistic. I will say this for the sculpting team. They did not skimp on the dick. <laughs> that's that's it's, why it weighed 3,000 pounds. It had I mean, 900 pounds of dick. It'd be impressive if it was on a normal size man. On somebody who's t on a figure that's 10 foot 5 in height, this thing looks like a fucking hoagie roll. It's right. ginormous. <laughs> it's huge. Getting down a triangle, subs getting himself a battleship. And it's, <laughs> it is, that's it's, a Pittsburgh joke. Sorry for out of, if you're out of town. It's really prominent. It's oddly prominent, like distressingly so. So, finally... He just whacked it with knitting needles. Make <laughs> sure it was nice and porous. I honestly... I, I think part of it is... And what, we can't, what we can't get in modern pictures is the finish of this thing. I would have loved to see what the surface of it looked like we after... All know what, we all know what part you want to touch. 
I mean, obviously, but um, after the acid wash, <laughs> the after, the, after the pores, this thing had pores. Yeah. Like, I just remember, I just imagine the calendar in this stonecutter's workshop in Chicago. It just says, just in Sharpie, dick week. <laughs> <laughs> Think of the research. Right. <laughs> so finally, October of 1869 came around, and after 23 months and several thousand dollars, the giant was, quote-unquote, discovered, and the significant public reaction took off, as we described earlier. Now, after a short while with the public hee-haw going on over in the Cardiff Giant, it was inevitable that members of the scientific community would have their curiosity piqued and come down to see for themselves what all the fuss was about, and the reactions were predictable. John F. Boynton, a renowned, a renowned geologist and one of the actually original elders of the Mormon Church in the early 1830s, lived in nearby Syracuse, and he was the first scientist to see the giant. Now, he pronounced that it was impossible for it to actually be uh, made of petrified organic matter, but he did offer an alternative uh, an alternative uh, solution. The, the statue may have been carved by one or more of the French Jesuit priests who were operating in the area in the late 16th and early 17th centuries who were trying to impress and convert the local Onondaga nation. Now, the next to arrive was Andrew D. White, a professor of history who was the first president of the new Cornell University in Ithaca, about 40 miles south. Now, also a farmer, he made a note of there not appearing to be a good reason to dig a well in the location where the giant was found. <laughs> this is like the first time that people figure yeah. out that this is probably a little untoward. Because at this point, like, I mean, even Boynton was like, Okay, so it's not a giant, but it's probably this. And mm -hmm. there were a couple other. He believed it was a genuine archaeological discovery. Correct. And it took a goddamn yeah. farmer to be like, "No, it isn't." <laughs> you yeah. idiots. Now, yeah, Andrew White stated, "Quote: Being asked my opinion, my answer was that the whole matter was undoubtedly a hoax. That there was no reason why the farmer should dig a well in the spot where the figure was found. That it was convenient neither to the house nor to the barn." that there was already a good spring and a stream of water running conveniently to both, that, as to the figure itself, it certainly could not have been carved by any prehistoric race, since no part of it showed the characteristics of any such early work, that, rude as it was, it betrayed the qualities of a modern performance of a low order. Do you imagine how pissed off you'd be if you just spent six months just carving this fucking thing? And a, <laughs> and a farmer's like, look at this piece of shit. So a farmer and... <laughs> College well, president. President of Cornell. Yeah. <laughs> just be like, look at this thing. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> like, whoever did, did a shit job. It just looks like this guy. The this, fuck this is weird this? looking dude. If he shaved his beard, like, oh, fuck. <laughs> and the dick's all wrong. Like, oh. <laughs> Why does it look like George? <laughs> so, now, now, the final nail in the academic coffin for the Cardiff Giant was the arrival of Othniel Charles Marsh, a famed paleontologist from Yale who was one of the greatest American proponents of Darwinism, and along with Edward Drinker Cope, one of the main drivers of American paleontology. Basically, O.C. Marsh was one of these guys who was the reason why natural history museums exist mm -hmm. in the way they do today, and he was the man who named about three-quarters of the dinosaurs that we best know today. Uh, Allosaurus, Apatosaurus, Pterodactyl, all of these, all named by Marsh. So... He, Marsh was the first to point out that the statue was made not of some kind of petrified flesh, but of soluble gypsum, and to make people aware of the relatively fresh tool marks still on the statue, <laughs> God. which on gypsum would have disappeared even if it had spent only a few centuries in the ground, let mm -hmm. alone multiple millennia. The thing about gypsum is gypsum is actually a very soft rock. Yeah. Um, we're talking like Brian Adams' level of soft mm -hmm. rock. Oh, God. Ooh. 
I'd rather be listening to Brian Adams right now mm. and say that. And he'll steely damn. Mm. Mm. Now, he publicly declared the whole thing to be, quote, a most decided humbug. But George Hall hadn't had the Cardiff Giant crafted for the scientific community. He'd made it to measure the reaction of the religious community, and as a whole, they all went and did exactly what he predicted they would do. Within two days of the Giant's discovery, multiple ministers and reverends were among the crowd preaching that incontrovertible proof of the biblical Nephilim from Genesis, the ancient race of biblical giants, had been discovered, and the emergence of the Cardiff Giant from the earth was a message from God revealing to his people the literal truth of the Bible. Never underestimate the American ability to stare at a fact and then completely ignore it. For weeks, nary a pulpit in New York and most of the states around it didn't have a clergyman speaking on the very same subject. And religious publications trumpeted the find as the greatest archaeological discovery related to the Bible since the uncovering of the ruins of Jericho. Newspaper editorial pages filled with evangelical preachers writing pieces going, See? Told you we were right. And traveling revivals made a beeline for Cardiff, setting up in the fields surrounding the hole containing the giant to celebrate the emergence of the proof of biblical literalism. And they had crowds ready for them because lines stretched away from the tent of, on Stubbs Farm for two weeks and people were showing up and paying their 50 cents for the purposes of, sh of going into the tent with their Bibles and praying over the stone giant on the ground. And multiple scuffles broke out as people tried to jump into the hole to touch, hold, kiss, or in some cases, lick the big man in the hole. But hold on, I just realized what I said. Wow. Here. No, no, no. I, oh. I did not set that up. I, oh, oh, my goodness. I need to start proofreading my scripts more. <laughs> I am leaving that in. So, <laughs> that's what was said after they licked the big man in the hole. <laughs> so, so, God damn it, Rob. So soon, Stub needed to... I clap, now the dog's excited. He's just bringing shit. <laughs> soon, the fuck? Stub needed to get his farm back, and the giant was lifted out of the ground and sent to... Actually, before I get to that, a fact I forgot to write down. I, I, read, some, I read in one of the accounts that there were over a dozen tent revivals going on at the same time <laughs> around the site. That's a lot. That is a lot. But yeah, so Stubb needed to get his farm back, and the giant was lifted out of the ground and sent to nearby Syracuse for exhibition in what would ironically become one of the founding buildings of my original alma mater, Syracuse <laughs> University, when it opened its doors the next year in 1870. By now, it was a nationwide sensation. People were traveling from Chicago, Baltimore, and even New Orleans to come see the preserved Nephilim, and the ecstatic religious energy did not die down. Wait, what was the mascot of Syracuse? The orange. It's orange. orange. How the fuck is it not the stone giants? You know what? I thought I was thinking Probably about this. Probably because it's fake. Because it's not a thing. Yeah, because you... Orange. Which is a thing. Stanford's the cardinal. That's yeah. a thing. At least it's a... a it, it's not the bird hey, on hey, its own. Hey, it's not, no, your not, hey, not, not the bird. The does, color. Does your Alma <laughs> Matters mascot fight scurvy? I didn't fucking think so. Sit down. So, well, that was oddly hostile. I, I can't actually argue with that either. <laughs> I mean, I, you don't have scurvy if, if a panther eats polio. your throat. Hail to pit, baby. Let's Woo! go. <laughs> so, the, so the New York Herald called it the, quote, the world's largest revival meeting. Oh, God. People were said to be healed by ailments, by healed of ailments by being in the presence of the giant. 
Folks broke into trances and began speaking in tongues, and representatives from every church were roaming around trying to recruit new congregants because their church had the best interpretation of what was going on with the Cardiff Giant. There are like 500 people a day coming to see this fucking thing. Yeah. After a week on display in Syracuse, Hull sold off his part interest in the Giant. <laughs> his part interest. Yeah. To a syndicate of local businessmen who I'm not sure were in on the hoax or aware that the giant was a fake for a total of $23,000. It was about a half milli. No. <laughs> Modern purchasing power, $2.2 million. Holy. Where are you getting that number? Best I got was 493000 Because you're calculating pure inflation. I'm calculating relative uh, purchasing, purchasing power. Purchasing power, which is very difficult because I know we talk about... Um, we talk about inflation an awful lot. Um, it is incredibly difficult to get anybody to agree on what exactly inflation means. Mm. Uh, and it is super funny to hear yeah. like men of science just like belittle each other over mm -hmm. this. Yeah. For me, it's based on what, 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 does, you what's could, the equivalent what you could get what, for that shiny nickel? What's the equivalent of what 23 grand gets you in 1869? What, what, what does that equivalent get you today? 2.2 million bucks for a half share in a fake giant. Of course, all the hullabaloo... That's, that's fucking worth it, man. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Plus, in the wrong line of work. He's just running from tent revival to tent revival, cackling. Because, But also, right. I get the feeling that Hull did not plan this as a financial exercise. I think he was just willing to blow all that money. At some point, I feel like he had to see that there had to be some money in this. Because yeah. his whole thing is about the gullibility of these tent revivalists. I think maybe you're right. I also think that if Hull had never made a dime off of this thing, he still would have been satisfied. Correct. He Correct. was willing. Yeah. Well, he was initially, willing to... I 100% I, I agree. Yeah. Initially, whenever he, whenever he bought 10,000 pounds of gypsum, <laughs> he was not expecting to make a whole bunch of money off no. of this. But he was also already like a, a successful businessman. Yeah. This was so, a bone. Yeah. Yeah. He 2,600 bucks to him was, I mean, it was probably a chunk, but it wasn't oh, going to yeah. wipe him out. You know, he wasn't spending his life savings on this. Well, because apparently his family were like early investors in the Erie Canal and mm -hmm. shipping on the Erie Canal. So for a couple generations, they kind of been raking in cash. Now, of course, all of the hullabaloo over the Cardiff Giant drew the attention of showman and promoter P.T. Barnum, who took one look at the crowds the Giant was drawing and said, I'll give you 50 grand right now. <laughs> the offer was refused, so he raised the offer to 60 grand, and that was also refused. So... Barnum took a different tack. He went maximum Barnum. He paid a man who worked in the exhibition hall to sneak in at night and model parts of the giant in wax and pass the wax molds off to an artist that Barnum hired. And once all the mold parts were put together, a replica of the Cardiff Giant was made from plaster and aged to look exactly like the original work. Barnum then displayed the replica at his traveling circus, claiming that he had the real Cardiff Giant, and the one that they claimed was pulled out of the ground outside of Syracuse, that was the fake. The display outside read, <laughs> quote, <laughs> Oh, this is so good. It's just, now it's so many people just lying. Yeah. <laughs> the display boards outside the, outside the, giants, uh, the giant exhibit read, quote, What is it? Is it a statue? Yes. Is it petrification? Is it a stupendous fraud? Is it the remains of a former race? Now, newspapers picked up Barnum's side of the story, and David Hannum, the, leader, the head of the Syracuse Syndicate who now owned the giant, 
fired back, saying words in reference to the people queuing, to, saying these words in reference to the people queuing to see Barnum's giant that are usually erroneously attributed to Barnum himself. There's a sucker born every minute. That's the one thing that I was most excited to learn about this. Yeah. Is that it wasn't actually Barnum that said it. It's mis- is, Do you think it's a misattribution of the quote? Or do you think Barnum just said that he said that? Oh, he, he absolutely <laughs> picked it up. Well, yeah. he absolutely picked it up. There's he, also he's an argument. very good at taking other people's things yeah. and mm-hmm. then making them his. I also found this out that the, it was actually probably quite a common phrase um, hmm. in like confidence games and shell game people like that. That they've okay. probably been yeah. using it. So Hannum wasn't making this up out of thin air either. So it's entirely possible that Barnum used the phrase a lot, but it generally does gets me. Having this being said about Barnum is what most gets misattributed to Barnum himself. Yeah. Soon, Hanneman and his compatriots had filed a lawsuit against Barnum for slander for calling their giant a fake. Hmm, bold choice. This was all by the end of November 1869, only seven weeks after the giant was discovered. However, the judge in the case, who it was later revealed was being paid off by Barnum, (laughs) told Hannum and his co-plaintiffs that if they wanted an injunction against Barnum's giant, then their own giant could come into court and swear as to its authenticity itself. (laughs) Even if he wasn't paid off, I would still be down with this. (laughs) That's a judge just looking you in the face and going, you know what? Fuck you. Now finally, on December 10th, 1869, after watching the crazy reaction to his little hoax and getting exactly what he wanted, George Hall was forced to give a deposition in court regarding the Hannum Barnum case, and under oath he revealed the hoax, and afterwards went to the press along with other members of the little conspiracy to attest to the role he played and to the Cardiff Giant being a fake. He stated that he carried out the hoax for the express purpose of revealing the tendency of Christians in America to believe outlandish things too easily, and that he was indeed the one who was right about biblical giants having never roamed the earth. So this man had been edging himself for, what, two years now to get to this point? Mm Mm-hmm. That must have been the greatest day of his life. No statement from the preacher from the Iowa Tent Revival who started Hall on this whole thing has survived, at least not that we're aware of. Now, naturally, after this story caught fire in the national press, the religious sector in America immediately pushed back with a firm, nuh-uh, and all sorts of allegations were made by clergy, religious publications, and conspiracy theorists about George Hall, from him being nothing more than an atheist shitster who was just jumping on board a story he had nothing to do with to try to prove a point, to him being on the personal payroll of one Charles Darwin... <laughs> To try and advance this demonic idea of evolution. No, there were editorials going, he's being paid by Darwin. To Hull actually being a sworn agent of the devil himself meant to cast out into the hearts of believing Christians. Nice. That's a fairly Does common this theme, though. fucking sound familiar. Yeah, so, that, yeah. that never really changes. Yeah. Uh, another thing that we did, uh, we did kind of gloss over after the court thing. This is according to author Gerald Smith in the hilariously titled Fake of a Fake of a Fake. Um, including this, <laughs> a, a double whammy ruling by the same judge was that Barnum can't be sued anymore for telling everybody the other giant was fake, even though it came out that he, his was fake. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's the <laughs> like, thing is there was no reciprocity there. <laughs> like, the thing is everything was fake. Barnum's fine. Even though he stole your giant. <laughs> After Hulse. Well, they didn't have a patent on it. 
Yeah. yeah, they never copyrighted it. They never copyrighted it. So actually, Barnum was free and clear, mm-hmm. <laughs> in at least in a legal sense. I mean, he's guilty of being a dick. He did steal your giant a little bit at a time. time. <laughs> so... <laughs> it was like Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> he was just like sneaking in at night. He had to hover over the lasers. But what I love is that. Oh, at, but what I love is that after December tenth, after Hall gave his deposition, the court was forced to launch a full investigation into both giants and had to closely examine them to determine whether or not they were actually giant <laughs> petrified men or fakes, and had to make an official declaration. <laughs> so, however, by March of eighteen seventy. Five other fake Cardiff Giants were out in circulation, drawing crowds all over the country. This is like having a Broadway cast and a national tour playing at the same time. So both these and the original from the ground in Stubbs Farm would continue to do so for quite some time. And here's the best part. The Cardiff Giant wasn't William Hall's only petrified man hoax. In 1877, he did it again. Now, just to prove that America's Christians had learned nothing from the original Cardiff giant hoax, Hall had another giant made. This one eight feet tall and made of mortar, rock dust, clay, plaster, bones, and dried meat. All fired in an oven for several days before being buried for three months near the frontier town of Beulah, Colorado. He was terrifyingly close to accidentally just creating a golem. Yeah. It was just an incantation away from this just being a problem for everyone. (laughs) He accidentally sets up five candles in a pentagram and boom, you're done. Too late. Now, it was discovered by a fossil hunter named William Conant, who happened to be a former employee of P.T. Barnum. (laughs) I don't know if it's coincidence or not. Who found the petrified man and took it to nearby Pueblo and had it put on display and examined. Now, he claimed that it was not some ancient petrified giant, but a work of art or spiritual devotion made by the local indigenous tribes, perhaps hundreds or even thousands of years before. <laughs> now, the Denver Daily Times stated that, quote, there can be no questions about the genuineness of this piece of statuary. Unfortunately, Hall was once again proven right as preachers started showing up and claiming that this one for sure was definitely one of the biblical giants from before the flood. It's full of bones and meat. So are people. Yeah. And the whole process started all over again, although with less people around as the location was a bit more remote. Mm. However, the find was soon uh, the find was soon given the name the Solid Muldoon by the press, said to be named after a frontier wrestling champion and strongman named William Muldoon, whose nickname was the Solid Man. <laughs> <laughs> if anybody's got a lawsuit here, it's him. Yeah. Now soon the Solid Muldoon went on tour, and once again came P.T. Barnum offering 20 grand for the petrified body. <laughs> However, there was a bit of a double whammy to the uh, to the appeal of the Solid Muldoon because first off, a disgruntled insider went to the press mm-hmm. and some enterprising journalists who got word remembered the story of the Cardiff giant and approached George Hall, who quickly confessed to the hoax and this one died a little sooner than the first. But this was not the only petrified man to cause a stir after the case of the Cardiff giant. In 1879, the owner of a hotel near Tahonic Falls State Park near Ithaca, New York, hired a group of men to construct and bury a fake petrified man near the hotel to drum up extra business. It was, quote, discovered by workmen who were on the take, but the hoax quickly fell apart after they all got too drunk at the hotel bar and revealed the hoax to anyone who would ask. I'd do it. I'd absolutely. I'd fuck it up. Oh, yeah. I'd fuck it up. 
Uh, also, there was a bit of a problem in that one of the main ingredients in this petrified man was iron filings, and as soon as it was unearthed, the whole the the guy began to rust. Oh no! <laughs> and that kind of gave away the game. We did forget a very important thing about the Muldoon. Go on. Had a fucking tail. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Oh, so I have two theories about this. The first is that Hull really wanted to fuck with the people who were disputing evolution, or that the solid Muldoon had a dick like the Cardiff Giant. He was just tucking it back. Oh, I didn't think of that. <laughs> just doing the silence of the lambs. Yeah. Would you fuck me? <laughs> I'd fuck me. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Far, far be it from us to stop a stone giant from wanting to tuck hey, it man, into the PPD. Whatever makes you happy. Now, in 1892, a con man and probably future episode subject named Jefferson Randolph Smith, better known to everybody as Soapy, made a giant out of concrete and buried it on a hillside near Creed, Colorado. And once dug up, he gave he charged the exorbitant price of a dollar a head to see it on display in the local saloon, giving it the name McGinty. Mmm, McGinty. Soapy, showing off McGinty in Creed, Colorado. There's real, like, old prospector energy to this. Now, when experts from Denver showed up to examine the petrified body, it was gone. And so was Soapy, who... <laughs> Decided to make a run for it before he rocked up in Skagway, Alaska, where he was shot to death in the street in 1898. Just have this visual of him just, just, just trying to dragging it, dragging it through the mountains. Just a comically sized suitcase. <laughs> Joe Dirt with his meteor. It's on a radio flyer wagon. I don't know why I see that for some reason. Now, in 1897, a supposed petrified man was discovered along the Missouri River, just downstream from Fort Benton, Montana. Local newspapers marveled at its, quote, neatly trimmed sideburns and mustache, which feature, with features so perfect that a person who knew the dead man in life could not fail to recognize him now. Now, the Bozeman Chronicle eventually identified him. This was General Thomas Muir, famed, famous commander of the Union Army's Irish Brigade and former Montana Territorial Governor, who'd fallen over the side of a steamboat on the night of July 1st, 1867, while in the midst of a severe paranoid state and blackout drunk. Now, this, the supposed petrified cor uh, corpse of Mayer was taken on tour all the way to New York, where it was supposedly examined by the brand new technology of X-ray and declared authentic by a one Edwin S. Kellogg, M.D., who exists in no official medical record. <laughs> now, now, there are dozens of other stories of petrified men being discovered and displayed in the last few decades of the 19th century, but the hoaxes took their toll and well-earned skepticism began to devalue the petrified man. Whereas Barnum offered 50 grand for the Cardiff giant, he dropped that to 20 for the solid Muldoon, then two grand for a petrified giant discovered at Wind Cave, South Dakota in 1890, then a grand for another one found near Fresno, California the next year. I love that they were the Bitcoin of their day. By the end of the century, <laughs> you could find secondhand fake petrified men in curiosity shops throughout the country including one found in 1899 in a shop in Cincinnati for the princely sum of $6,900. Any guesses? Twelve. $1.06. Damn. <laughs> I'm not, I would buy the hell out yeah. of one of those. Now, George Hull continued to run his tobacconist business, and he lived comfortably in Syracuse, becoming a sponsor of scholarships to, the, to Syracuse University and donating dozens of works on biology, paleontology, and Charles Darwin to the university library. He died at a ripe old age in 1902. 
fairly obscure, but proud of his hoaxes to the very end. Does your alma mater have a statue of him just like teabagging a Bible? <laughs> As a matter of fact, they do. Yeah. Excellent. <laughs> so what happened to the Giants themselves? One replica is on display at the Fort, Muse- at the Fort Museum in Frontier Village in Fort Dodge, Iowa, where gyps- the gypsum block for the original Cardiff Giant was quarried. Hmm. Now, Barnum's replica stayed in his, rec- in his collection until 1912, where it passed through a series of private owners before coming into the possession of Marvin's Marvelous Mechanical Museum in Farmington Hills, Michigan in 1964, where it resides to this day next to an electric chair from Sing Sing. <laughs> now, as for the OG Cardiff Giant, it toured the country with various sideshows before being, I guess the term is decommissioned, and stored in a barn in Fitchburg, Massachusetts in 1892. It was dug out and put on display for the 1901 Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, but it received relatively little attention and was soon put back into mothballs. An Iowa publisher named Gardner Cowles Jr. published the giant at an estate sale in 1931, and he placed it in his basement rumpus room to serve as a conversation piece and a coffee table. That is amazing. Now, he sold it in 1947 to the Farmer's Museum in Cooperstown, New York, only 66 miles from where, it's origi- from where it originally appeared from the ground to great acclaim. It resides there to this day on display in an outdoor tent, well-loved and cared for and lauded by the locals as part of their kind of local flavor. But it also stands as a monument to the credulity, the gullibility, and the religiosity of the American masses, and the fact that in this country, no matter how outlandish the claim or how much evidence there may be to controvert it, There's always going to be some people who believe it. Ken Feeder, a journalist and author who frequently studies hoaxes and frauds, wrote of his visit to the Farmer's Museum where he watched a couple enter the tent containing the Cardiff Giant with a large sign on the front that declares it to be the world's greatest hoax. The couple walked around the giant for a few minutes, snapped a picture of it, and then before leaving, the woman turned to her partner and said, So is that real? To which the guy (laughs) replied, Yeah, I guess so. (sighs) <sighs> oh, but stories of giants still appeal to us today, really. I mean, we've got Roald Dahl's BFG, we have Attack on Titan, you know, people still fight mm-hmm. giants all the time in things like D&D and video games. You know, the nine-foot-tall space marines are central to the lore of the 40K universe. The Cernabas giant is still drawn in crushed chalk on a hillside in Dorset, England, 180 feet in height with a 36-foot-long full boner as well. <laughs> Have you guys ever seen the Cernabas giant? I have not. Well, I mean, not in person. Not in person, but have you ever seen a picture? <laughs> every time I see it, every time I take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> it's a 186-foot-long boner joke, in case anybody yeah. missed that one. Now, giant humanoids are a fairly regular subject on Coast to Coast AM, and giants are still talked about all the time in modern magic and esotericism. I mean, I remember seeing stuff about giant humanoids in the garbage magazines by the grocery checkout mm-hmm. that I'm sure made... Oh, yeah. A lot of people from our parents' generation far more likely to be camped out in Dallas waiting for JFK to come back and fight the deep state. Now, a couple weeks before recording this, there was also that video that cropped up all over social media of some dude allegedly catching a giant on camera on Mm. top of a mountain somewhere Mm -hmm. in the Canadian Rockies and then spawned a whole conspiracy that the dude who filmed it was mysteriously killed, even though it turns out he's still very much alive. He's still posting on the same TikTok. Yeah. And what he filmed was a cell transmitter tower. Uh, There are... (laughs) Yeah. Huh. It's it's not hard. And yet... <laughs> How are we still here? One of the great unanswered questions. I don't know, questions. man. Probably, you know, at this point, it's just got to be numbers. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, why are we still here? We as a, a species like to fuck. That's the only thing I got. Now, there are millions of Christians in this country who believe that dinosaur fossils are, in fact, the ancient bones of the Nephilim, the biblical giants, and that scientists are altering them to conceal the truth from getting out. And there's millions of people who still believe that there's a giant of sorts who walks around the woods and mountains of the world all the time. Because I would equate Sasquatch, Skunk Ape, and Yeti stories, whatever you want to call them, with this whole thing, because we're still talking about a seven or eight Sasquatch foot giant. Sasquatch is not a giant. That's a North American wood ape. That's a hominid. That's not a giant. Yeah, Put some says, respect on his name. Hey, says, that is the official beast of Greensburg, Pennsylvania. Coming from the sole known, coming from the sole known Great Pittsburgh beer ape. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, I know what I'm changing my my Instagram handle to. <laughs> Actually, it's it's funny you bring that up because sometime I do want to cover the big. Uh, double UFO Bigfoot flat that took place in my hometown back in the 70s. We're making that a road trip episode. I thought it was the I 80s. Want to go out. I no, it was 73, 74. 70s. Uh, I want a road trip yeah. that one. It's We can be there in like 45 minutes. Yeah, my mother will make us lunch. Right? <laughs> I'm finding Bigfoot. I'm doing it. <laughs> I mean, the guy the guy who was kind of running the whole thing, he's still around. We can call him. A Bigfoot? I have his phone number. Yeah. Bigfoot? Probably fake. Sasquatch? Real. 100%. It's a hominid. Come on, man. Mothman? Fucked him. Anyway. Let me some Mothman. Mothman is so commercial, man. I mean, we've got a, we do have a, a Mothman chrysalis right on the north side. Like mm-hmm. You guys have ever seen it? It's right in front of the Children's Museum. Ah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have, this, we have this chrysalis. A chrysalis. Mm-hmm. Could be free. Mm-hmm. Mothman or men. Hashtag teach the controversy. But no matter what sort of influence. We did have a bridge collapse. Yeah. I, right. <laughs> Mothman. <laughs> but no matter what sort of influence giants have on our culture today, you can't deny the still existing power of hoaxes. From pe- from the people who tamp down crops in the night to people to make people think aliens have landed, to the folks who put on a pair of big carved wooden Bigfoot prints to go leave tracks in the woods, to those who have migrated more to the internet and take the path of hoax as a troll job, the tradition of let's do this just to mess with somebody or to prove a point and see how far it goes is still very much alive and well. I'm not sure if there will ever be another giant petrified man that is unearthed from somewhere and causes a complete sensation, but given what people have shown themselves to be willing to believe of late, I wouldn't be surprised if there is eventually. Man, I wish conspiracies were this pure again. Yeah. But we can always rely on the credulity of the American people for entertainment, and when the opportunity presents itself, I hope there's another George Hall waiting in the wings ready to give the next generation of storytellers like us something to talk about. And that's our story for today. It's wild that all of these, cause, and we started the episode with this, and I, I didn't want to derail it more than we already had with our many, many asides, but all of these different cultures had giants. Mm-hmm. And, and especially if you look at like all the First Nations, they... All was, have giant myths. They all also, have giant yeah. myths, and they weren't talking to Scandinavians. Mm-hmm. I mean, at some point, probably. I mean, if the stories are to be, to be believed, like you know, Eric the Red made it here well before Columbus mm-hmm. did, but it it wouldn't have gained traction that quickly, and especially because some of these cave paintings already existed. Mm-hmm. There are two things that exist across cultures. They are in every single documented, and I mean, of course, we do have a lot of. Uh, we just talked about Boudicca. You know, there's yep. no there's no writings of Boudicca because they didn't write. Mm-hmm. Uh, but anybody that has anybody that had kept records has giants and dragons. 
and floods. Mm-hmm. But floods are giants, definitely a thing. Like we know, dragons yes. and floods. Yeah, but floods are definitely a thing we've seen, and it's and there's biting on that. Like, mm-hmm. where did all of this come from? So it's it's another one, and, and I think ultimately dragons we can safely say were not actual things. I mean, but, I th- I think but maybe they found some bones. I have a th- well. I, that's the thing. You find a bone yeah. of a Tyrannosaurus Rex, mm-hmm. and you have no context, or, or even a mammoth. Yeah, right. And it was well. And again, with the giant humans, mammoth, well, we Kyle, Kyle and I this. both thought that. Yeah. That, go ahead, Kyle. Like, uh, what what so, part of it was? Uh, as soon as we started talking about this, my brain immediately went to the uh, elephant skulls that were discovered, mm-hmm. or the mammoth skulls, and the idea that there was a race of cyclopses, giant cyclopses. Uh, because when you yeah. look at a stripped elephant skull, it looks like a sure single yeah. big eye sure do look like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and that actually may be a story that's worth covering, maybe in an extra ration or something, because there's not as much to that story as there is It's to less this intentional, one. but it is a good, yeah. it is a neat... Yeah, that one wasn't really a hoax. That was more of a misinterpretation, but a misinterpretation that's very hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I, I have a theory as to why they're, the the giant stories are kind of a a universal thing, except for a few areas of the planet, like the Pacific Islands and things like that. Just the first part is fossil finds. Mm-hmm. The second part is everybody. Everywhere, pretty much, has had at at the root of the human experience an exposure to megafauna. Could be mastodons, mammoths, giant ground sloths, even going back. But we could also just be talking about moose, uh, mm-hmm. elephants, rhinos, uh, wild aurochs, just animals that are bigger than you. Anything that is bigger than you creates an innate sense of fear, and it's why I'm terrified of you back- two. Absolutely terrified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even going back to like. Pacific Islanders who don't necessarily have a giant. Um, a lot of the, a they, lot of the, they all have a leviathan. A man. lot mm-hmm. of the deities yeah. were people scaled up. Yep. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, this volcano was a giant man. Yeah. Who like this is uh, this is where he is resting, and eventually he's going to come out. Like this is his home. He's so big. That he lives in this volcano, yeah. and we have to do something to appease him because we've seen what happens when this shit goes off, and these big people are scary as fuck. We have it the nature. We have it in our nature. To take the big things that scare us, be they animal, be they geological, whatever, and anthropomorphize them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where it comes from. I think it's... Because the other argument, and I don't know if there's as much to it, is that it's kind of a universal, you know, part of the collective unconscious and kind of the the Jungian idea Mm -hmm. of, you know, human commonality. But I really do think it just comes from us being scared of big shit. Yeah. Yeah. Which I mean, ultimately, is is a little bit of an aside from where we were getting, you know, because this is you know basically him telling people that Genesis six four wasn't a real thing, mm-hmm. but that's where it came from. That's why it was in there because we had giant myths. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just such it's just such a good story. It, it like all these moments where George Hall has got to be reading these newspaper editorials or just standing at the back of a church just listening to. Some preacher go on and on and on about the the biblical Nephilim that they found in the ground outside Syracuse. Are just sitting there going, <laughs> well, also counting his stacks of cash. That yeah. And again, I I, I think that we can all agree that that Hall is one of the least. Uh, what's the what's the word we want to go with here? Uh, one of the least wicked. Yeah. Of the hucksters that we've talked to, it just seems like the guy was a ball buster, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Hey, you want to see my giant? A couple bucks." 
And that was it. Most, 50 cents. Most, you were out 50 cents. Yeah. That's it. Hilarious. He was out to prove a point and not cause legitimate harm. Yeah, right? he wasn't sitting there going... the people we talk about don't fall in that category. Correct. And, and he He's was, not sitting there going, I'm going to let them see my false giant in the ground. And then I'm going to hit them in the head with a claw hammer. Like, and, that wasn't his point. And I will simply take all of their things after yeah. I have flayed them. He presses but, the button on his belt and the giant comes alive <laughs> and just starts throwing revivalists through the air. But I think he is less of a con man and more of just a huckster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because of the stories I heard about people jumping into the pit to rub the giant's dick. <laughs> because they thought it would get a faith healing. It's so good. It's so it's all just so good because everything he wanted them to do as a result they did mm-hmm. on a massive scale. He must have been a hell of a salesman. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean Barnum definitely was. It's to be fair how selling cigars ten- in the 1800s wasn't exactly difficult. But I, I mean like to to push this and to to put the word out cuz he was going to all these tents that had popped up. He must have been a hell of a salesman. Mm-hmm. Like really, to get people to come in and do this. Well, he wasn't even kind of. It wasn't even on him. He was kind of relying on other people to get the word out. Yeah, and they did. Although he had I, already I, written all those op-ed pieces about the prospectors drinking geo juice. <laughs> <laughs> like do you think that may have had something to do with this? Ultimately, it was like oh, it's cracking up o- petrified people. You mean cracking open the coconuts of the underworld? Mm. <laughs> Forbidden coconut. <laughs> I just think that's so goddamn funny. <laughs> like, do you think that's what that's what planted the idea? He was like, "Well, people." He was like, "They printed this in the newspaper." Well, like, well, we went over in the first half of the episode. I think there were just a million different cultural, yeah. cultural forces at work here, between people's religion, between mythology, between you know the stories of the indigenous population. I think. There were just a million little things that were all just kind of pushing people towards the premises of seeing a not particularly realistic looking giant in the ground and going, Genesis 6-4 is right. And you just get pulled over that event horizon. It's, I mean, it, it, it was a period of, it was just primed for this kind of thing. Kind of like what we see today where you find a potato chip shaped like Jesus and there's people wrapped around the block to pray to it. Well, I mean... Though that that photo of that cell tower on that mountain yeah. in Canada got posted, and you read the if you read the comments, Nephilim, 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 mm-hmm. Nephilim, Genesis six four, Genesis six four. <laughs> Fuck man, we're and a it, century and a half on it, it and it does changed. it does feel like there is a certain demographic that is more easily swayed by some of these things. How many sandwiches a year do you think Jesus appears in? Just sandwiches. It's a lot. And I'm not saying that the people who looked at that video and immediately thought Nephilim, I don't, I'm not saying there's a Venn diagram with people who buy a certain brand of pillow. (laughs) I don't think I can because I'm fairly sure that Venn diagram is just a fucking circle. But, (laughs) I mean, well, because as soon as he gave the deposition... Where did people's hats go? Straight to conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That that George Hall is part of a massive conspiracy to undermine our faith. After he admit and described exactly how he did it. I mean, he was part of a conspiracy, but involved like six dudes. Right. 
And it wasn't like... It involved like, a bunch of German guys that they were just mean to. <laughs> like, well, this clearly isn't... Like, you could tell this thing's not a mummy. It sucks. I'm like, oh. <laughs> Although, if I were those sculptors, I'd be looking at the everybody going, it's so lifelike. And just be going, I think we did a very good job. <laughs> a single tear rolls down his cheek. That is all the emotion I can express for this year. <laughs> so, man, what a story. Oh, God, I love it. I had so much fun researching this. This was a very fun one. Yeah. Yeah, we don't, we don't often get to do something that we can all find something to enjoy. Because <laughs> it's usually we find something to enjoy, and then somebody is ripped to shreds. Or <laughs> I do have one more question before we wrap up. Okay. What do you think happened to the dick? Because at least one of the replica, replicas is missing its dick. The truth is out there. Mm. That dick could still be out there. Incontrovertible proof of the biblical giants. <laughs> somebody's gonna unearth. Somebody's gonna unearth just a fucking dick the size of a basketball shoe. Truly proof of a god in their ground. Well, we got. We do have friends of ours who work in uh, who work in ceramics. So can easily make one. I own property. <laughs> <laughs> Should talk to some of them, see how they feel about working in gypsum. No, wait a minute. Chris, you were just talking about getting a well, right? Well, in a couple months. I don't see any reason why we couldn't sink a fancy new well back in the in the back 40. Anybody know any German sculptors? Hmm. Although there is a story about... <laughs> uh, there is a story as to why the dick may be missing. There are a few stories, a few theories as to why the dick may be missing, too. To I cover mean, his shame. I mean, one may be, yeah, a whole propriety thing, because we are dealing with... I mean, the United States in essentially what equates to Victorian times, mm. or even in any time in the 20th century up until about the 1990s. At the, um, at the tail end of the Rasputin series, where we're talking about that guy that was just buying up famous dicks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a market for these things. Yeah. I mean, he he is a urologist. Mm-hmm. But it, so. Oh, no, no, no. That, that's the. Um, that's the Napoleon. Oh no! Dick. Yeah, that's the guy. We're with talking Napoleon's about dick. the weird Slavic man. No, the guy in Russia. Yeah, who just bought what he still says is the Rasputin dick. Well, oh. we know that it is, in <laughs> fact, not. Ours is mighty instrument of some thirty centimeters. I'm just gonna throw this out there. You're. Oh God, we're gonna find. No, we're no, gonna no. find. You, you said, but he's a urologist. If I go to my dental office and my dentist <laughs> comes out with a tooth necklace, I'm turning around, and getting the fuck out of there. <laughs> Like when I got my vasectomy, if I turned and looked and just seen a big stone dick in a jar, I'd have been kind of <laughs> upset. That'd be fair. I think it'd be fucking hilarious. <laughs> that's gonna get that's gonna get people in the door. But I could also see it ending up in some place like the Mutter Museum or something oh, like yeah. that. Or yeah, like I, I don't know. But apparently, it's it's gone. There is a, prob- a story that's probably apocryphal that it, there was a guy who was witnessing it at one of the kind of the sideshow exhibitions who was so overcome by embarrassment at having seen such a large member that he ran home, grabbed a hammer and chisel and jumped out, jumped into the exhibit and knocked it off in a rage. Um, But yeah, one of the great mysteries of our time. My God, I think we may have opened up more questions than we answered with this show. Mm. Good job, boys. Good job, boys. Is that Dick? What a tremendous denouement. Mm. (laughs) And on, that note, <laughs> and on that note, show uh, me that D. <laughs> show me that D. Chris, show me that social media. <laughs> 
Well, if you have any suggestions, you can email us at trr. T- well, maybe I can try that one again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just can't stop thinking about that sweet, sweet giant bean. Uh, you can email us at trrpod at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast trr. Check us out on Instagram at trrpod. You can follow us on Facebook simply by searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, you can join us in Valhalla at www.patreon.com slash trrpod. Rob is officially broken. I can keep <laughs> no, no, no. For no. as little as $1 a month. <laughs> I just have a visual now of some farmer in Iowa using it to drive fence posts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Uh, for as little as a dollar a month, you can get all the exclusive content uh, in our Patreon, including episodes like this, up to a week in advance. Uh, and if anybody uh, has been noticing the, the absence of Michael Ornette, uh he is expected to resume uh, recording shortly. Uh, right now, he is probably, I would assume, on day 41 of his Around the World in 80 Days uh, contest with his Society of Gentlemen Explorers. Mm. But it was last seen on a steamer bound for Marrakesh. Oh, that means he's about to get to the uh, hot air balloon leg of things. I'm very mm. excited for Lucky that one. I hope he is, too. I, man, images are just going to pop into my head of what people are doing with this lost giant dick. So we're just going to wrap it up here before I keep losing it. So, uh. You think it's on OnlyFans? I. Oh. Maybe that is Mm. how we're going to make the money. I, I, I have a. Mm. I think I know what our next video is going to be right after Step Keith. What are you doing? Oh, no. All right. All I know is that I'm just gonna I'm just gonna make a plaster cast of a Pringles can and throw it in my yard for two years. (laughs) (laughs) When I dig it up, we're gonna be rich, fellas. Before we wrap things up, I do want to give a big shout out to a new friend of the show, Aaron Wallach, for not only becoming a VIP Patreon member, but also for consuming every episode we've yet put out in the matter of a couple of months. Aaron, I am very sorry for what we've done to your brain. Uh, I I also, uh, because the Patreon, Aaron did uh, expressly uh, ask for the link to Mike's agreed to and contractually obligated uh, Catherine the Great rant. Uh, I do see that the link that I reposted, because I have it up now, does have a listen. So, Aaron, I hope you enjoyed it. (laughs) Amen. Amen. All right. Well, uh, go out there into the world with a sense of curiosity. Never lose it. Never stop searching. For that missing gypsum giant dick in your life. Hold fast, everybody. We'll see you next time.